Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Please pray with me. (coughs) Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here with us this morning and we trust that you are here. May my words be your words. And all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've only tried to write a novel once. It was a science fiction thriller, if you can believe that. And I say I tried because it only lasted a couple of chapters. See, what I did was... Um, I didn't know any better, so I just sat down and started writing chapter one, sentence one, right at the beginning with no plan. I had no idea where the story was going. I had what I thought of as some cool ideas for what might happen, but I didn't take the time to plan the trajectory of the story before I started writing it. So pretty much as soon as I began writing I was lost. The Bible, of course, is the exact opposite. God, being outside of time and space, omniscient and omnipotent, has a plan for the whole story from the very beginning. So you can see hints of how the story is going to unfold in its entirety from the very first sentences. In the Bible, there are tons of little things, little hints that the reader is supposed to pick up on. They're like little promises of what's to come. Last week, we talked about one of the most famous biblical examples of the story having a hint of the end within it. When we read about God's promise that the offspring of the woman, who turns out to be Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent, a promise made even as the judgments of Eden are being pronounced on Adam and Eve. The final victory is being referred to even as things are just starting to go off the rails. It's a tiny allusion to something that will end up being the most important thing in the history of the world. Jesus's crushing of the serpent's head. The Bible is full of this stuff. And this week, we have a very similar thing, but in illustration instead of illusion. Something tiny that's going to grow into something world-changing. And we actually get it twice. Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, is describing the kingdom of God. He's sort of Searching for an appropriate illustration, it seems, and eventually says that it might be compared to a mustard seed. Really? This prototypically tiny thing is a good analog for God's kingdom? It would be easier for us to think of God's kingdom as something 
big, something overarching, something eternal. It's a little harder, I think, to imagine what Jesus might mean by comparing it to something he calls the smallest of all seeds. But like I said, in our readings this week, we actually get this illustration twice. I think it will help us as we consider what Jesus is talking about here to connect it to the language that Jesus himself is connecting it to. Back to the words of the prophet Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of its young twigs. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it in order that it may produce boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it, every kind of bird will live. In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will accomplish it. Check out the parallels here. We start with something tiny. A young, tender sprig from the very top of a tall tree in Ezekiel and a mustard seed in Jesus' parable. The young sprig then grows up into a noble cedar. And similarly, the mustard seed becomes the greatest of all shrubs. And finally, each plant will take care of all the birds of the air. They can make nests in the shade of the branches of both the mustard shrub and the noble cedar. So Jesus, in his description of the kingdom of God as being like a mustard seed, is intentionally borrowing the form of this Old Testament prophecy. But what's his point? Why is he doing it? What's going on here? Well, I want to take this in two steps this morning. First, we're going to look at the way in which God works, as described in Scripture. And second, we're going to look at the focus of God's work, Jesus Christ. So first, the way God works, and second, the focus of his work, Jesus. So first, the way God works. When we widen out our gaze from these two little illustrations that we have, one in Ezekiel and one in Mark, we'll see that we have in these little illustrations a profound description of what we might call God's routine, God's habit, if you will. In other words, Jesus is telling a story meant to show us what God is up to by showing us that it's in line with what God is always up to. To see this, let's start back at the very beginning. Consider the story and rhythm of the very first part of Genesis. After the creation narratives and the story of Adam and Eve, there comes a huge increase in the population of the world as they are fruitful and multiply. But then sin and corruption begin to dominate. And so God decides to go from something big to something small. He narrows the focus of his care from all the peoples of the earth to Noah, 
and his family. And then after the flood and a fresh start, the population begins to expand again. But then again, sin and corruption dominate, this time brought to a head at the Tower of Babel. And so again, God narrows his focus. He has promised not to destroy the world with a flood, so he scatters the people and their languages, deciding to once again center his care on one family. This time it's Abram. And in a sense, the rest of the Old Testament is about God's ministry to the family of Abram, who becomes the ancestor of a great nation, Israel. So we have this rhythm in Scripture, a rhythm of expansion and contraction from big to small to big again. And that's exactly what we see both in Ezekiel 17 and again in Mark 4, in which Jesus is borrowing Ezekiel's imagery. God plucks a tiny sprig off of a big tree, narrowing his focus, the big becoming small, and then plants it, bringing something new out of it. The big to the small to the big again. Jesus in Mark says that the kingdom of God, something that we naturally think of as big, is actually like something small, a mustard seed. But when you plant that mustard seed, it becomes something big again, a shrub which will provide shade for all the birds of the air, just like that noble cedar of Ezekiel 17. So that's the first thing. This is the way that God likes to work. Taking the big, focusing on the small, and then bringing something big and new out of it. But God's work also has a purpose, a specific purpose. It's drawing our attention to something. In the same way, if you can imagine an hourglass that's big at the top, big at the bottom and narrows to a very specific point in the middle, your attention is drawn to that point. When you look at an hourglass, that's where you stare. The middle point, the specific point. These stories are similarly drawing our attention to that focus point of God's work. One small thing, a tiny sprig, a mustard seed. The point where God is at work. Noah and his family. Abram and his family. And now, another seemingly small thing. And this is the second thing these stories are drawing our attention to. The focus of God's work. They are pointing us directly to Jesus Christ himself. He is the main point here. This is the proper interpretation of these texts. This is what Jesus is doing with his parable of the mustard seed. He's pointing us to himself. These two texts are doing what the whole Bible is doing, focusing our attention on that one point, Jesus Christ. Shining a spotlight on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus. He 
And he alone is the place in which we can find shade. He and he alone is the one who can adequately care for us. It is in him alone that we are saved. The entire kingdom of God, Jesus says, can be compared to a single tiny thing, a mustard seed. In the entire cosmos, the kingdom of God is resident in a single person. The entire saving work of God is found in Jesus. God has taken the huge family of Abraham, an entire nation, and has brought from it a single individual, his incarnate son, the Savior. The whole story of God's people has narrowed to Jesus, the one sprig, the mustard seed. And then, on account of Jesus' sacrifice, widens back out again to encompass the whole world. Birds of every kind can find rest and nest in the shade of his branches. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus preaches in John chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, we have a single grain, which Jesus says might be the entire kingdom of God. We have one person, God Almighty, narrowed down to a single point, his incarnate son, Jesus Christ, and this single grain becomes something great. This single person saves the world. And he does so by dying. This is the point to which the entire cosmos narrows. It is his own death and resurrection that Jesus is preaching about in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is the mustard seed, the single point upon which the salvation of the world depends. He will fall into the ground and die. He will be planted and he will bear much fruit. Jesus is the tiny sprig of Ezekiel 17, the source of new life and protection for all of creation. He will be the beginning of a new tree, a spiritual, heavenly, and eternal tree. And anyone and everyone can come to him for rest and redemption. As Ezekiel ends this tiny section of his prophecy, he declares God's power. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord, he says. I bring low the high tree. I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree. And make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will accomplish it. The same God who is making big things small and then bringing new big things out of them is also doing something even more profound. He's turning things into their opposites 
right? Low trees will be made high. High trees will be made low. Green trees will be made dry. And dry trees will be made green. And it's in this opposite making that we find the real good news. A God who saves sinners. When I read these closing phrases from this section of Ezekiel 17, I immediately thought of St. Paul saying the exact same thing in his first letter to the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers, he writes in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And now the good news. And because of him, this opposite-making God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses the things we think are impossible for him to use to accomplish his purposes. He makes low trees high and high trees low. He makes green trees dry and dry trees green. He uses tiny sprigs to bring forth great trees. He uses minuscule mustard seeds to grow towering shrubs. This is how God works. And it is all accomplished in and because of Jesus. That one point on which everything focuses. And God's not even done yet. This counterintuitive work of God continues. He uses broken sinners to build his church. He uses an ignominious criminal's cross to accomplish the salvation of the world. He wins new life by dying. He made the righteous one, Jesus Christ, into sin. And he makes sinners righteous. On account of Jesus, he makes you righteous. Jesus is the fulcrum of the story of the world. He is its climax, the point on which everything turns. Everything is focused on him, like that hourglass with one point in the middle. That is Jesus. Jesus is everything. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension are God's mighty acts to accomplish your salvation. The entire kingdom of God is resident in the man Jesus, who actually lived the righteous life you cannot live, who actually died the death that you deserve, who actually came back from the dead to ensure and guarantee your reconciliation to God. One life, one 
tiny sprig, one mustard seed, changed everything. One life, something that seemed so small. But that one life, Jesus' life, has won for you and for the world a new and eternal life. Something huge from something small. And now it begins to spread out again. We preach, we pray, we sing. We confess and are forgiven. We eat and drink of Christ's body and blood. We love our neighbors as ourselves. All kinds of righteousness pour out of us, not because we are so good, but because we are grafted onto this new tree. Because we rest in the shade of its branches. Because God has kept his promise. And his word, embodied in his son, did not return to him empty, but is even now accomplishing the purposes for which he sent it. What do we preach? Jesus. In whose name do we pray? Jesus. Who do we sing about? Jesus. One name. One life but a name that contains the kingdom of God and all of his saving work. A life that was given for you. The Lord has spoken, claimed Ezekiel, and he has accomplished it. It's done. Now, because of one life lived 2,000 years ago by one man, your life, My life and the life of every sinner who calls out for redemption is caught up in his saving embrace, shaded by his branches. In Jesus, you are made new. In Jesus, you have found rest. Thanks be to God. Amen.